You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking with a group of experts from the CHOP Adolescent Protection Collaborative, also known as the APC Clinic. I want to start with a warning that this episode will have adult themes, and you may not want to listen to it around small children. The Adolescent Protection Collaborative is focused on creating a specialized medical home for youth who have been sex trafficked, so we will be defining this issue, exploring how it intersects with primary care, and understanding the importance of a medical home for these youth. Okay, so let's introduce the experts joining me today. First, we have Kaylee Hackett, who's a public health social worker and the clinical services coordinator for the APC. Welcome, Kaylee. Hi, glad to be here. Next, we have Dr. Polina Krass, who's a fellow physician in emergency medicine and co-founder of the APC. Welcome, Dr. Krass. Hi, so happy to be here. And last, we have Anish Raj, who's a fellow physician in child abuse pediatrics and co-founder of the APC Clinic. Welcome, Dr. Raj. Hi, thank you so much for having us. So you all are some of the team members involved in the Adolescent Protection Collaborative, or APC, which was created with the generous support of the Oscar and Elsa Meyer Family Foundation to provide a medical home for youth who have been sex trafficked or sexually exploited. Before we get into understanding what this collaborative does, though, I think we need to start with some definitions and understanding of the problem that led to the need for this collaborative in the first place. So first off, how is sex trafficking defined, Dr. Raj? Sure. So for the purposes of this conversation, we'll use trafficking and another phrase people might be familiar with, the commercial sexual exploitation of children, or CSEC, interchangeably. In the pediatric population, we can broadly define sex trafficking as any exchange of a sex act for goods, and goods can be money, shelter, drugs, anything of value, involving a minor, which of course we define as someone under the age of 18. And contrary to popular belief, trafficking does not require the movement or transportation of a victim survivor. People can be trafficked in their own homes, on their own block or neighborhood, as well as across state lines or international borders. That is really interesting since the word traffic is in the definition or in the word itself. I'm glad that you made that clarification. And this may be my naivete, but this sounds like something in the movies and not in my primary care clinic. So can you give me a sense of the scope of this issue? How often are youth involved in sex trafficking? And are there regions where this is more common? Right. So unfortunately, given the clandestine nature of the sex industry, we really don't have accurate data or a reliable way to estimate when it comes to trying to determine the scope from an epidemiological standpoint. However, what we do know is that cases have been reported in every state throughout the United States, regardless of setting. So that means rural, urban, suburban communities are all affected. And historically, there's been data to suggest that places on the I-95 corridor, as well as those on the southern border, have some of the highest rates of trafficking. And also that the vast majority of minor sex trafficking victims here in the U.S. are quote-unquote domestic American kids. That is, American citizens or permanent residents and not actually individuals who are trafficked from an international location. A previous U.S. Bureau of Justice report estimated that this number is around 80%. 
Now, I would imagine that most patients don't present saying that they're involved in sex trafficking. So, Dr. Kress, I'm wondering, what are some of the ways that we might be able to detect that a patient is experiencing sexual exploitation? And what are some of the red flags that we should be looking out for in a primary care setting? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, just like Anish said, I would maintain a very high degree of suspicion because youth from all communities, all socioeconomic backgrounds, unfortunately do experience sex trafficking. So the most useful thing you can do is to make sure that with every single adolescent visit, you are having a confidential conversation and assessing for risks that way. Thinking through red flags, we know that there are intersectional risks for sex trafficking. Unfortunately, youth who face the consequences of structural inequities like racism, poverty, homophobia, and transphobia are also more likely to experience sex trafficking. In terms of ages, the typical age of entrance into exploitation is 12 to 16 years old. And then thinking about your history and your physical, some things that you might pick up on that would raise my red flags are a history of child protective services or juvenile justice involvement, a history of running away from home, unexplained or multiple absences from school or from home. And then the chief complaints that I would be more concerned about are someone who's presenting with a suicide attempt or suicidal ideation, and then, of course, someone who's presenting with acute sexual assaults. There's some signs that you might notice when you're just interacting with the child. So certainly a child who appears guarded, withdrawn, someone who's very fearful. Thinking about the person that's with them, I would worry if that person appeared controlling or forceful. I would think about whether that child is providing consistent information. Inconsistent information, especially regarding where they live, is definitely a risk factor. And then on your physical exam, I would look for, of course, evidence of physical abuse, including evidence of injury, burns, and then also things that might be suggestive of branding. So you can see tattoos. I would worry about a child who had a history of multiple or recurrent STIs, poor dentition, uh, malnutrition, and then a history of pregnancy or abortion. And then, of course, if you have any level of concern, I would just make sure to ask some targeted questions in a private setting. And you can specifically ask about the risk factor you've identified. So you can say, you know, I've noticed that you've got this tattoo and I'm a little concerned about your safety. Can you tell me what that tattoo is about? And then we'll get to kind of a little bit more of a conversation of some of the questions that you might want to ask. Yeah, you've described so many adolescents that we see with all of those different potential red flags. And I think it what it comes down to, which you highlighted so well, is needing to have that confidential and private conversation with an adolescent so that they could potentially disclose that this is going on. And it's so important that we have that opportunity to talk to youth one-on-one and Mm -hmm. um, have those conversations and things that we're doing at CHOP, like the Adolescent Health Questionnaire, where they can fill out some questions, screener questions on a tablet can also help facilitate some of those difficult conversations. So something that you mentioned just now is that it's not hard to imagine that youth who engage in these high-risk sexual encounters would be at risk for things like pregnancy, pregnancy complications, and STIs. But what are some of the other potential health impacts of sexual exploitation and trafficking? Yeah, that's such a good question. I'm glad you asked because youth who experience sex trafficking face a number of physical and mental health risks that extend beyond sexual and reproductive health. So these are children who often just aren't coming in and getting their routine health care. They're more likely to be behind on vaccines. They're more likely to have uncontrolled asthma. 
And then, of course, these children are at very high risk for mental health conditions. So not only are they more likely to have a diagnosed mental health condition, but they also are more likely to experience suicidal ideation or self-harm and to use or abuse substances. So important for us to keep in mind during the current mental health crisis, too, as we're seeing more kids presenting with suicidal ideation to keep this topic in mind. So given the complexity of physical, mental, and social concerns related to sex trafficking, it makes sense that an interdisciplinary team would be beneficial in caring for these patients in a way that creates a patient-centered approach and removes barriers to accessing care. So Kaylee, I'm wondering if you can help describe what the APC clinic involves and how you're doing this. Yeah, gladly. So as you mentioned, the APC is really interdisciplinary and a group effort. Our clinic takes place at CHOP Primary Care Carabots, but it is a collaboration between Safe Place at the Center for Child Protection and Health, CHOP Adolescent Medicine, Primary Care, and Family Planning. So we have clinic two Fridays a month and see on average four to six patients per clinic day. And our goal is to always be very patient and youth-oriented. So our visits can vary widely depending on the needs of the young people we're seeing that day. The team that makes up our clinic staff is an adolescent medicine attending. At this point in time, it's either Shelby Davies or Sarah Green. There's also Dr. Raj, who's a child abuse fellow, and then a social worker, which we're calling a clinical services coordinator in the role that I fill. Now we can talk about the flow. So typically when a patient checks in, they're provided a brief health questionnaire that provides us with information for the visit. And because we try to be trauma-informed and ensure that we only ask questions that are really pertinent to the care that we can provide, the most important question that we ask is, what do you want to talk about today? Our clinic is very youth-focused, so sometimes that can be like, oh, I'd like to talk about my fertility, or I'd like to talk about getting tested for STIs. It's really youth-directed, but there are also other questions that we ask, such as if they're interested in mental health or dental or yoga or other resources so we can get a better idea of where to direct our time and potential services that may be helpful for the young person. During this coordinated visit, there's an opportunity for examination, STI testing, same-day contraceptives, but again, we offer a menu of things and the youth can either take them up or not. We're not mandating or forcing any type of testing or services, but it's really focused on what they want out of their visit and their time with us, so we follow their lead. Typically, the physicians will see them first and complete the medical examination, and then I'll meet with the patient to address any of the social concerns that may be present. So whether that's about getting back into school, getting referrals to community resources, helping to verify their insurance, or talking about mental health providers, we're thinking about employment, all of those kind of things. It's about having conversations about what their goals are and how we can help them meet those. As we conclude the visit, we make a plan for follow-up. They complete any lab work, and then they're given a ride back home, which is grant-funded and facilitated through the Center for Patients and Families. As for aftercare, we follow up by telephone and stay in regular contact with patients depending on their needs. What a beautiful mission and team-based collaborative approach. And shout out to our friends at Carabots, who I know listen to this podcast. So as you've all mentioned, youth who are involved in sex trafficking may not seek preventative care often. So how are patients presenting and finding their way to the APC clinic? 
So in developing the clinic, the founders are really intentional about building relationships with other service providers and folks who may interface with young people who have experienced trafficking. As such, many of our patients present from RAP Court, which is a diversionary court for youth who have experienced trafficking, the Salvation Army, the FBI, CBH, DHS, the Human Trafficking Task Force, and the Children's Advocacy Center are where most of our patients first present before being triaged to our care. We see our clinic as a secondary or aftercare place for youth to visit after they've been connected with other services and systems, and we know that there are people working to get them into a safe place. We've also had some word-of-mouth referrals where young people in our clinic will talk to their friends who may be system-involved or in still in the life about our clinic, and I think those have been the most special because having them vouch for us means the world. Mm-hmm. We've also been really intentional about creating a safe and non-punitive space for these young people and focusing on being trusted, reliable adults that they feel comfortable turning to. That's really, that is a great testament to your clinic that you're getting referrals from your patients, but also a great example of how systems can work together that you're explaining. And it's really inspiring for, I think, many other clinics that want to start up. So I'm just curious a little bit more about what your experience with the clinic has been so far. What kind of demographics are you seeing and what are some of the challenges you found? I imagine follow-up could potentially have some pitfalls and I'm curious how it's been going. Yeah, so I think first and foremost, it's just been a lot of fun. A lot of these kids have reputations that unfortunately precede them, and it's contributed to them having negative healthcare experiences in the past. So just to be able to provide what we hope is a low-key, youth-friendly, welcoming atmosphere, like Kaylee described, and have the kids come in, kick back, and freely talk about what's on their mind has been really cool to be a part of. A lot of these kids have wonderful sense of humor, just have incredible resilience, and just really just a neat sense of, of savviness to navigate their circumstances. So it's been fun to meet with them and get to know them over the past year. So when we break down the data from our first 15 months of clinical operations, we've received 38 referrals, most of those from our community partners. And of those 38, 33 have attended at least one appointment. 82% of our kids identify as Black or Hispanic. All of them have had child welfare involvement in some shape or form in their lives. All of them have had some interface with the mental health system. The vast majority reside in a single-parent household, foster home, or group home, and the majority have struggled with consistent school attendance. And given the unpredictability that a lot of them experience and really you know, the lack of consistent, stable social supports, I think often the challenge is just that, and that's the unpredictability. Phones get disconnected, numbers change, placements change, caseworkers change. Mm-hmm. But with that being said, we've been pleasantly surprised by how many do stay in touch. About half have already followed up in clinic at least once, and with the number of in-person clinic follow-ups ranging from two to nine. And in addition to those, we've logged about 350 telephone contacts in between visits just to check in and enhance accessibility to our providers. And I think those outside of traditional work telephone outreach initiatives have been really key in developing those meaningful connections with the kids. Yeah, I think those numbers are really demonstrating that patient-centered approach and connection that Kaylee mentioned that you work so hard to build in clinic. And so that's really great to see that it's playing out in terms of your follow-up care as well. Now, much of what we do in primary care is about prevention and patient education. So what, if anything, can we do to help prevent youth from becoming involved in sex trafficking in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question and a bit of a tricky one to answer. First, we can start off talking about risk. And as um, Anish and Paulina have mentioned, who's most at risk of being sexually exploited? So there's no prototypical trafficking victim and all children are at risk. That being said, there are age-related risk factors. So just by virtue of their 
young age, all youth are vulnerable to manipulation and exploitation, coupled with the fact that adolescence is a period of growing independence from parents and a period of experimentation, both with substances as well as sexually. There are also individual and family contexts that put young people at greater risk of experiencing trafficking, which can include a history of trauma, a history of childhood sexual abuse, Additionally, environmental factors such as household dysfunction, child welfare involvement, caregiver substance abuse, homelessness, and peers being involved in trafficking, as well as some behavioral health factors such as running away and psychiatric and substance use comorbidities. So knowing all this and circling back to prevention and taking a socio-ecological approach, commercial sexual exploitation of children does not happen in a vacuum. It's a systemic issue of poverty, inequity, trauma, racism, of lack of resources. So zooming way out and thinking about prevention, it's about equipping systems and institutions and families with the resources and supports they need to create a healthy environment for children and families to thrive. That's a great way of putting it. And I didn't mean to um, imply, Kaylee, that you could fix this whole problem, although I think if anyone could, it's probably you. So (laughs) I think uh, it's great that you gave us a little bit of perspective, at least about in primary care, how we can help support our families. Now, what's your future vision for the APC? And what would you say to listeners who maybe are outside of the Philadelphia area who want to do similar work at their institution? I think this is always our favorite question. <laughs> I'm hopeful that the the positive relationships that we've been able to foster will continue to be at the heart of the APC. I think when we conceptualized this clinic initially, the emphasis was always to make sure that these kids weren't defined by what had happened to them and to provide accessible and personalized care for a population that's so often been let down by adults and authority figures in their lives. And as we grow, I'd love for us not to lose sight of that, while also ensuring that the clinic can be integrated into community long term and then is sustainable in Philadelphia. Now, we've had the privilege of presenting our model and data at several academic conferences and would be ecstatic if providers outside of Philly wanted to do something similar. We really do think that there's a place for this kind of clinical service. Our experiences have shown that this population is not invisible. And if you build something that colors just a little bit outside the lines, isn't constrained by the traditional medical model, I truly think it can work. It just takes being flexible and putting in the time to ensure that everyone's on the same page. I love that. I love that you all thought about this so creatively. And again, that patient-centered approach for what would work for the patient population that you were trying to reach. So I know if the listeners are like me, they're sitting here thinking about a particular patient and wondering if that patient could be experiencing sex trafficking or exploitation. And if that's the case, what can they do? Yeah. So I think that primary care physicians are already in a great place because the most important thing that you can do is just invest in your relationship with that patient and lay the groundwork for ongoing trusting interactions. We know that many victims may not disclose their experiences the first time that you ask, but by asking, you might open the door to future disclosures. In terms of the nitty-gritty of how to actually ask the question, I always like to remind people to disclose the limits of confidentiality. So I always explicitly tell teens that if they share that someone has abused them or someone else, I am a mandated reporter and would need to tell the state just to make sure that person can't abuse anyone else. And once you've laid that groundwork, I would start with an educational and normalizing statement like, unfortunately, many teens I've taken care of have found themselves in unsafe sexual encounters. So I've started asking everyone a couple questions about their safety. Once you get that out of the way, there are a couple of different approaches to asking directed questions. The AAP has a review on 
commercial sexual exploitation of children. And they have three questions that they specifically recommend that I think are good ones. The first one is, has anyone ever asked you to have sex in exchange for something you wanted or needed, like money, food, shelter, or any other items? The second question is, has anyone ever asked you to have sex with another person? The third one is, has anyone ever taken sexual pictures of you or posted such pictures on the internet? And once you've asked those questions, that can lead into longer conversation where you unpack some of those answers. Depending on what the patient says, and of course their age, you may need to immediately file with your state's child protective services. And in several states, including Pennsylvania, there's an option of identifying concern for child trafficking at the same time as filing a child abuse report. Since there might be an immediate safety risk for the child, Involving the resources that you have available at your clinic is important. So if you have social work, that is incredibly useful. If you don't feel like you have a safe disposition for that child, you might need to transfer the child to a local emergency department for their safety while Child Protective Services gets involved in the situation. And I would just encourage people to err on the side of safety for the child when they're encountering these situations. The other thing that sometimes happens is that you have a high degree of suspicion, but when you talk to the child, they don't disclose any history of trafficking or abuse, and you don't have any signs of abuse on exam that you need to immediately contact Child Protective Services about. And what I would urge you to do in that situation is just to continue to invest in the relationship and focus on education. So often you can say, if something does come up, where you are in a situation where someone asks you to have sex or do something sexual in exchange for something you want or need, or even just in a setting where you don't want to have sex with them, please let me know because I want to be there to help you. And I think opening that door is often the most important thing that we can do for these patients. Thank you for sharing that specific language from the AAP and that you use, because I think it is really helpful for providers to have that as a a starter until we kind of build this into our routine practice. It's helpful to hear what experts like you are doing and the sort of best way to approach these conversations so that we can elicit the information, but also, like you said, start building that relationship, understanding that even when we have a suspicion that this may be going on, it may not be disclosed. That's not our failure, but we've opened that door for an ongoing relationship and conversation. And I think you've all demonstrated that so beautifully today and how you're doing that with your clinic. So thank you so much for sharing with us about the CHOP Adolescent Protection Collaborative. And we are happy now to know that we have that resource at CHOP and we've inspired hopefully others to think about building similar resources nationally. And I appreciate all of you for the work that you're doing in your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 